trailblazers in research, innovators in technology, and those who simply have a good story. All make up the fabric that is George Mason University, Virginia's most diverse and innovative university. I'm John Hollis, and this is the Access to Excellence podcast. Hi, I'm John Hollis, and thanks for joining us here again on Access to Excellence. We're excited to be joined today by Mary Ellen O'Toole, the director of Mason's Forensic Science Program and a renowned former FBI criminal profiler. Dr. O'Toole worked as an FBI agent for 28 years, spending more than half of that with the Bureau's prestigious Behavioral Analysis Unit. Dr. O'Toole helped capture, interview, and understand some of the world's most notorious criminals, such as the Green River Killer, Gary Ridgway, the Unabomber, Ted Kaczynski, and Ed Kemper, among others. She's also worked numerous other high-profile cases, such as Elizabeth Smart and the Natalie Holloway disappearances. Dr. O'Toole is also one of the driving forces behind Mason's new Forensic Science Research and Training Laboratory on the Science and Technology Campus in Manassas, the five-acre facility which will open in the spring of 2021 with just the eighth location in the United States capable of performing transformative outdoor research and forensic science using human donors. And it will establish Mason as a leader in forensic anthropology and investigations and as a valuable community partner with law enforcement. Mary Ellen, welcome to the show. Thank you, John. Thank you for inviting me on. I'm excited to be here. Well, we are thrilled to have you. So let's just get right into it. You have literally been knee deep in this line of work since childhood with your parents. How is it that you became so fascinated with understanding the criminal mind? Well, I think I scared my mother when I was about four, four or five because I kept asking her or explaining to her that I really wanted to know what goes on in somebody's mind at the moment that they're committing murder. And of course, back then we didn't have the FBI, BAU, there weren't articles out on this, but I kept saying that's just something that I'm really interested in. And again, I think it worried her, but... <laughs> Understandably. <laughs> My mother had worked for the FBI. In fact, she was one of the secretaries for J. Edgar Hoover when he would come to Chicago. My father was an FBI agent. So I think that she held out the hope that this curiosity that I had would be channeled into <laughs> something that was, was going to be normal someday. <laughs> so what is it about it that, that so much appeals to you, though? Well, I'll tell you, when you start to think about what it is that causes somebody to commit murder, what motivates them, how they do it, how they plan for it. I find that just incredibly interesting because most people don't commit murder, but some people do it really well and they do it over and over again. And I have found through my interviews and some of the, and the work I did in the BAU that there are people that make a career out of committing murder. So it's not something that they shy away from. So for me, that's just intriguing and interesting. And I had the opportunity to interview a number of violent people, including serial killers. And I think that really hooked me once and for all. Once you, can... you, talk, <laughs> you talk to a serial killer, it's all over, John. You can't ever go back to another hey, Be the first in your blog to interview a serial killer. I always said that as a journalist, right? How difficult, I mean, you can hear the, your enthusiasm and your passion for what you do, but how difficult is it to transfer that that fascination to your students, especially in an academic setting? I will tell you this, I was stunned when I came to Mason. A large percentage, maybe as many as 85% of my students are females, which is awesome. And a high percentage of the audience that watches these crime shows on TV are mm -hmm. women. So when I started to talk to my students, they started to say the same thing that I said. They want to know what goes on in the head of a killer. They want to know why they do it. They want to understand how you resolve a mystery. So on two levels, they sort of normalized me because they were thinking the same thing. <laughs> 
but they were so curious about and so committed to the science that whether they wanted to be a DNA analyst or a toxicologist or a crime scene investigator, they are so excited and passionate about the work because they too are very fascinated on why and how people commit violent crimes. And we all know, of course, nothing's going to match experiential learning. And your program has done that beautifully. First with the Crime Scene House, which you can tell us about. And also now, most latest thing, the Forensic Science Research and Training Lab there in Manassas. Why is it so important that this next generation of crime solvers really get that hands-on experience? Solving crimes is all about putting your hands on something, whether it is in the Forensic DNA Laboratory, whether it's in the Forensic Chemistry Laboratory, or you're out at a crime scene and you're actually collecting evidence from the scene, or you're at a forensic research facility and you're researching the decomposition of human remains. All of our work requires that you put hands on to understand how the crime occurred, what the evidence tells us about the crime, how you process a scene. You can't just work in a lab and study it in a textbook. You have to put your hands on it. And that's why this experiential effort that we're putting so much into for our students is critical for their learning. Once they graduate from the program, they will go to the FBI, to the Virginia State Police, to local law enforcement, to a forensic lab, and they'll be asked, how much experience did you have actually putting hands on whatever it is that your expertise is in? And they're going to be able to say, let me tell you what I've done out at George Mason. And that is a win-win for us and for our students. Tell me a little bit about the crime scene house, the experience you're learning. That was really the, you know, the first building block for you guys for that. The beginning of the crime scene house was awesome. I think that was the first year I was at Mason. And our crime scene investigator professors, who are awesome, were teaching crime processing and how you go into a crime scene and how you identify evidence and so forth. We're actually doing the training in classrooms. So the application of that environment to the real world was just very poor. So we talked about getting a crime scene house, and I thought the first time that the dean's office asked me to create a budget, I thought, what the heck, I'll just ask for a house. (laughs) Surprised I kept my job. And with the help of the crime scene investigators in the program, we put in for a house, and we estimated what we needed, and eventually we got a standing house. It's a real house. And it's an older home, and it has multiple rooms in it now, and it has a living room and a kitchen. And it's awesome because the house is set up, it's staged like a homicide scene, like a robbery scene, like a kidnapping scene. And we have mannequins in each room. We have some of these mannequins that have been shot, they've been stabbed. And students go into these rooms that are based on actual criminal cases, and they're told to go in and process it. And they actually learn by going into these individual rooms, finding the evidence, showing that they know how to collect the evidence, just showing how you move around a crime scene so you're not contaminating it and stepping over evidence. The whole house is on camera. So the instructors can stay in a little room and they don't even have to go into the scenes. They can actually observe our students and how well or not that they process the scene. And that feedback is given to our students right away. So there's immediate feedback, there's immediate learning, and it's in the type of environment that our students will find themselves in as soon as they graduate. And the feedback is incredible. They love that experience. That's fantastic. Now on top of that, you've added the Forensic Science Research and Training Lab which is one of, like we mentioned, one of just a handful in the entire world outdoor facilities that uses donated human remains. First of all, how will these human remains be acquired and how exactly will they be used? Our research facility will be the eighth one in the United States and the only one on the East Coast. 
And the reason that that is so significant is we are positioned right here on the edge of Washington, D.C., around government agencies, other universities, that we can really collaborate very closely with them, which is what we fully intend to do. And our first donors, we estimate, will be placed in late spring. And those come from the state of Virginia, the same agency that provides donors to medical schools, for example. So we have a process in place that we will be using. The donors will come out to Mason. We'll have a process where we will be able to immediately place them on the ground, or there may be some remains, some donors that will be buried. The important thing is that these donors will be screened for diseases like for COVID, so those donors will not be used for this effort. And once they come to the facility, we will have different scenarios that we will be using based on maybe what law enforcement tells us is a problem. For example, they may say, we're running into an issue with gangs and they're using ways to bury a body, making them very difficult to find. So we might be able to set up a scenario where we will bury a donor or set up a scenario where a donor is laid on top of the ground and we're able to follow the decomp or, or the rate of the decomp. So again, it will be used to do research, it will be used for training, but it will also be used for law enforcement so that they can develop better strategies and better practices to solve cases. Really, that's what forensic science comes down to, solving cases, identifying the guilty, and eliminating people that um, had nothing to do with the crime. But just so we're clear to the people to know, our listeners, the body parts will be in, a, in an enclosed one-acre part of the five-acre facility. And how is the university going to uh, ensure the uh, security of the lab? That's correct. We have approximately five acres, and the inner one-acre area will be used for the placement of human donors. The area will be surrounded by fence. There will be cameras. There will be lights and the police will monitor that area as well. The thing that we want to take advantage of, of course, again, security is going to be emphasized because we want to protect our donors, but we want to see what the weather does. We want to know what the climate does to the donors. We want to see what animal predation will do. We want to see what bug activity will do. So those are elements that will be very important to us. So through cameras, throughout that inner one acre, we'll be able to monitor that. I know in at least one community, Mary Ellen, that currently houses a similar forensic lab, that there were some citizens who had expressed some reservations. Have you seen or heard of any opposition from any students, faculty, or staff, or even from the surrounding community about the news of the new lab? And what were some of the challenges you faced in making this entire project a reality? Well, I will say this, John. Initially, when our program raised the issue of wanting to have this type of facility, we had to get over the raised eyebrows and the look of horror <laughs> on people's faces because it was a new initiative and it was something that they weren't familiar with. But mm -hmm. once we started to educate people on the campus about what this research facility would bring to Mason and what that meant in terms of research and training and application, slowly people, faculty, researchers became really excited. Now, as, as to the students, as they heard about it, they were over the moon with the potential that it presented to them. So it was never an issue with the students. It was up to us to educate people. And then I can tell you that over the last three or four years since we've been talking about this and moving it forward, the amount of excitement and support and congratulations that we've received from all over the university and probably more specifically from the College of Science has just been so rewarding that we have not gotten 
negative feedback from people. As far as external individuals, there were just a few concerns about whether or not something like this could create, for example, an odor. And mm -hmm. we were able to provide them with information that we were able to get from the other similar research facilities throughout the United States and explained what happens and what they can expect. And we were able to allay their concerns and educate them. And again, I can just tell you that the support has been incredible for this effort. What is this going to mean for your program and for the Mason students lucky enough to learn on this facility? Our hope is that we will increase our student population, we will increase our research, we will increase our profile, we will be able to collaborate with law enforcement and in other universities, other entities that are interested in this kind of research. One of the areas of research that we're very interested in is scent dog training. In real cases, we use scent dogs to find missing persons or to find human remains, but we don't really know how these dogs pick up these scents and what, what it is that they're smelling. So we know that there's going to be a great deal of interest in that particular area of science. So I think that we can really bridge with a number of partners across a number of disciplines, ways that we can develop these fantastic research opportunities and bring these, this training to our students, training for law enforcement. And then the other thing that we really wanna do when we move our program out to science and tech is eventually get a new crime scene house. And part of that house, we have decided that we want it to be a community facility so that hopefully if all goes right, we can actually do some training for K through 12 in a STEM capacity to show them what forensic science is all about, creating the next generation of forensic scientists and actually have like a little mini museum as part of that house so young kids can come in and say, wow, this is what forensic science does. This is something that I can do. And I think that by doing that, we can reach the next generation. And we're all very excited if we can pull that off, but we're real committed to it. You know, Miriam, the one thing we talk about a facility like this, the buzz so often focuses almost exclusively on the involvement of human remains. But besides providing students this unique and transformative research opportunities, you also anticipate solving real crimes in this lab. How do you envision that happening? Real crimes being solved in this facility? Oh, I definitely think we can really help law enforcement agencies to solve crimes. One of the things that I've seen over the years in my own experience is that, let's say, for example, in a homicide case, the victim is left outside. And often the state of the remains, they're so deteriorated that it's very difficult to obtain information of an evidentiary nature to identify the person or to really understand who is this person anyway. I mean, how do, how do we identify them? And we're going to collaborate with Dr. Mark Wilson from our program, who's an expert in the future of DNA, that we can now begin to bring DNA into this research facility. For example, be able to improve the extraction of DNA from bones, because right now in doing that, it's a degraded DNA, but the future is very bright for that technology. And moving forward, if we can identify human remains that maybe 10 years ago, we could not put a name on them, that's going to be able to help solve a lot of these cases. So I'm very confident that we will see through our research and training and the operation of the research facility, there will be a number of methods that we'll be able to focus on and incorporate that will end up solving cases. And speaking of solving crimes, you've also been part of some memorable cases yourself. I know you personally interviewed the Green River killer, Gary Ridgway, who was thought to have murdered 71 people in the state of Washington in the 80s and 90s. 
mostly teenage girls and women. He was convicted of 49 murders. What was it like speaking to and looking to the eyes of such an individual? And were you scared? He's fascinating to talk to. I will just tell you that. <laughs> I was not afraid, but the dynamics of that interview was, or were, that I was not there by myself. So outside the door was the King County Sheriff's Department tactical team. So I felt certainly safe. He's shorter than me. And I thought as I sat there that I can talk to people fairly well. I wasn't going to aggravate him or be judgmental or be condescending to him. That's not my role as an interviewer. My role is to enable that person to speak to me or want to speak to me. And I found that worked very effectively with him. And I think up to that time, it was an experience that he had not had with a female where he could begin to talk about his crimes and what he did to his victims. It was very successful. The other interviewers that I worked with were marvelous as well, and they were equally as successful. But when you get into the head of somebody that pleads guilty to the murders of 49 women in one county, and he walks you through the murders and how he did it and tries to explain why he did it, it's absolutely fascinating. And when you look at him, he's not crazy. Now, I understand that he also later called you at home while you're having dinner with guests. Now, that's a little different. How did that go down? Well, and John, in your world, that may be different. <laughs> Most people's world is different. <laughs> uh, Gary, Gary had reached out to me through a friend of his that he wanted to talk to me more about the extent of the damage of the murders he committed over the 49. So, so he was I, bragging. He wanted to brag? Oh, he's a big bragger, yes. So I purchased one of those phones that can't be traced, and I alerted the task force, I alerted the prison officials, so everybody knew what was happening. And as long as I provided him with the phone card or the phone, I'm not, I can't remember which one I had to provide him with, and I let the prison know this is what I'm doing, this is who I am, so forth, then when he would be out in the yard, he had an hour where he could call me three times a week. So one time I had some friends over and we were drinking wine and eating cheese and my drop phone rang and I picked it up and my neighbor, I guess, was a little bit frustrated with me. I could read her lips. She said, who are you talking to? And then I just put my hand over the phone and I said, I am talking to the Green River Killer. <laughs> they slowly put down their wine glass. They took the cheese out of their mouth, literally. And they both got up and they just walked out of the front door. They wanted nothing to do with <laughs> any of that. And the fact is she didn't think I was kidding because she knew the work I did and they just got up and they walked out and that was it. To think that this prolific serial killer was calling me at home was just, it was too much for them. Yeah, because who doesn't have serial killers call them at home, right? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know who doesn't. What exactly was Gary Ridgway calling to talk to you about, Mary Ellen? The reason that Gary had called me that night and on many subsequent days was that he wanted to write a book. And part of that book would have included him talking about his additional murders that were not part of the plea agreement involving the 49 victims. So he knew that I had written a book. I had interviewed him. So he thought I could partner with him to write a book. And then he wanted to know if I would come back out to the prison and sit down and talk to him. That was basically what he wanted. And I explained that any additional information that he had about murders could not appear in a book someday. That's information 
that would have to go to law enforcement. And I certainly wasn't going to get into a book deal with a serial killer. It's a <laughs> law enforcement issue. So it couldn't, it wasn't the kind of thing that you could put into a book. Although I did go back out to prison and interview him again. He played games. We talked a little bit and he looked at me and he said, I'm really not sure that I want to give you any more right now. And so it was a trip that didn't generate additional information. Maybe someday. Did he ever threaten you or get angry with you? Got angry with me a couple of times during the six-month interviews because I kept pressing him about how he felt about the victims. And I, I knew what his attitude was towards victims. Serial killers, especially serial sexual killers, tend to be manifest traits of psychopathy, which is a personality disorder. And the primary characteristic is that they have no empathy for what they've done to the victim or the victim's family. But I wanted to see how he would respond to my pressing him about his feelings for the victims. And he kept saying to me, I feel so bad. I feel so bad, Mary Ellen. That was the only adjective he could come up with after he took the life of 49 women. The only adjective that he could come up with was that he felt bad and he got angry at me. That was one of the times. And then another time he got angry with me for disagreeing with me. And you could see the thing I teach police officers and I teach my students, look for those chameleon eyes because when they change on you and they become that really dark, intense stare, you know that you've just crossed over a line with a psychopath that you should never cross over. And I, and I knew that when I was interviewing him in person when I crossed over the line. But again, there were so many people around me, he wasn't going to hurt me. Were there ever any cases that really shook you personally just because of their horrific nature? Well, I think in hindsight, after since retiring from the FBI, I think back on cases that, you know, at the time you, you had to go in and be very stoic and be very controlled in your, your emotions and be objective. And that was the emotion I felt back then. Now, looking back at it nine and 10 years later, these cases were heartbreaking. And there was one involving a little girl that was a very upsetting case. And then when you meet the families, which is very upsetting. I recall those cases and I know that it bothered me. But again, my job at going to a scene, my job is to understand the crime scenes, go to the scenes, study the scenes, interview the detectives and the medical examiner, look at the evidence, and then put all the pieces together so that I can come up with a product, an assessment that will help investigators solve the case. So we don't really have time to feel bad, we have got to go in and be as analytical and put our own emotions to the side. And I think we all did it. I watched other profilers do the same thing. What's the biggest thing that you take away from studying so many notorious criminals? And how do you incorporate those experiences into your curriculum today? I would say that the takeaway is that very often I've seen with people that begin to act out violently, let's say like Gary Ridgway, which would have been he said his, his first crime was about at 14. There are signs along the way. And the thing that I'm still struck with, John, after all of these years and, and working mass shootings and violent crime is that these people don't wake up one morning and just decide, I'm going to get some duct tape. I'm going to get a weapon. I'm going to go out and pick up some victims and I'm going to start murdering. There is so much evolution that takes place as early as preteen and even earlier, where the child is evolving and there's damage that's done and they begin to act out and they begin to start fantasizing about very violent attacks on people. And if we're able to do an intervention, and there was, there was a time in my career where I didn't think an intervention was possible no matter how young, I wonder now if there 
could have been an intervention, even with someone like Gary, very early on, if that would have made a difference. We know psychopathy has a genetic link to it, but with some of these other behaviors that contribute to particularly serial killers, if there could have been an intervention, that would have been when it should have occurred. But so often people miss the signs of evolving, progressive, dangerous behavior, or we just think people woke up one morning and started to do it. There is a profound misunderstanding of how violence evolves in the general public. Well, that's certainly a lot to think about, but that's going to wrap things up for us here today at Access to Excellence. I want to thank Mary Ellen O'Toole for her valuable time and insights. We want to wish her well and everything going forward. I'm John Hollis, and thank you all for joining us. Stay safe, Mason Nation. If you like what you heard on this podcast, or even if you didn't, or if you have a suggestion of what you'd like to hear, let us know at dchrisdodd at gmu.edu. That's D-C-R-I-S-T-O-D at gmu.edu.